Bibles, if you would, and open them to Acts chapter 3. And I want to return this evening to this chapter and observe again how the apostles responded to the command that Jesus gave in Acts chapter 1 before he ascended back to the Father. And there he said, But ye shall receive power, after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And the book of Acts is the beginning of that faithful command of the apostles to carry out this great commission that Christ had given. Now we often talk about opportunities for witnessing, and you've heard me say at different times that we really need to look for opportunities. Don't miss the opportunities. And the disciples did that. But they also did something else. They manufactured some of their opportunities. They made opportunities. And such is the case as we find here in the beginning of this third chapter with the healing of the lame man. The chapter begins with this man who is healed at the temple gate. And the opportunity to preach to a larger crowd was made possible because of that miracle. Uh, Others that had come to the temple because they were asking for alms from those that passed by. Those that came for daily worship were there. Curiosity seekers were there. And so this produced for the apostles an instant crowd for witnessing. Now tonight I'd like for us to focus on Peter's gospel presentation. Last week we used the crippled man as an example of how a person comes to Christ in faith. And now we want to look at what Peter had to say in the message that he preached just after that. Now sometimes when you look at gospel messages in the Bible, they're very short. Sometimes only a few words are spoken and the Holy Spirit moves on the hearts of people and they come to Christ in repentance and faith. Then other times you'll find that sermons are lengthy and they're very theologically involved and then the Holy Spirit will use that message to convict a heart and that'd be a sermon like the one that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. And it's still other times there are long, meaty, theological sermons that are given in which there are no results or at least no visible results from the preaching. Uh, We have an example of that in Acts chapter 7 when Stephen preached before the Sanhedrin. That was the longest message that you find recorded in Scripture is the one that Stephen preached in that particular uh, portion of the book of Acts. And yet there were no conversions when he preached that message. Instead, the rulers of the synagogue or the Sanhedrin there became very angry at him. And so they drove him out of the council chamber and they took him outside of the city and they stoned him to death. Now, whether a sermon is short or whether it's long, there are certain fundamentals that have to be a part of that sermon in order for people to hear enough of the gospel and to receive enough information that they can act on what's been said and respond to the message that's been given. Now, it's become popular in evangelicalism today to make gospel presentations as short as possible. And that's to get people to agree to a Reader's Digest condensed version of the gospel. Just get them to the place where they can say a quick sinner's prayer and then walk away from them and claim that another soul has been won for Christ. Well, I do believe that there are times when people make instant decisions. 
There are times when the Holy Spirit has already been working in a person's heart and preparing them for the gospel message, and they're just waiting for someone to come along and tell them about Jesus. And as soon as they hear, they latch hold of that, they grasp that, and they believe it. But I don't think that's the normal way. I don't think that's the way that it most often works. Those times are more exceptional than the rule. I remember several years ago when we had a a singing group that came to visit our church, and this group had been traveling around the country. And if I remember correctly, this might have been the first weekend that they had been on tour, and they were from uh, a church back uh, in the Mideast, or Midwest, I should say. And they came to our church, and uh, when they got up to sing... The first thing that they talked about was how in this first weekend that they were out, that they had won 1,200 souls to Christ. Well, I never heard about any follow-up to that. I never heard about those people being received into a church. I never heard anything about anybody, any church baptizing those people. And so you wonder what happened, what, what took place in that what they called a conversion. I don't think that instant decisions are the normal thing. That's not usually what happens with true converts. And so don't be surprised when you have to make multiple attempts to win people to the Lord. You have to go back and you have to keep praying. And don't be surprised when people aren't saved at your first visit and you don't see a visible result. God can still work in that person's heart. So I think it's unwise for us many times to make a, make a bold announcement that someone has come to the Lord and they've been saved when we don't actually see them. We can't observe them for a period of time and see that they follow the Lord and especially unless they've been uh, follow the Lord in believer's baptism. I think that's very important for a person who's trusted Christ. Now, this evening, I want us to look here at the sermon that Peter preached in this last section of Acts 3. And we see some very important points that Peter made in this sermon. Peter made an all-encompassing presentation of the gospel. He didn't give the gospel light, the one that's less filling, but he gave all the important information that must be believed in order for souls to be saved. Now, if you'll look in the book of Acts, chapter 3, beginning at verse number 12, We'll begin here. Now remember, just previous to this, there's the healing of the crippled man at the temple gate. And the people were amazed at what they had seen. And they were wondering what had happened. Then verse 12 picks up the story and says, When Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life whom God hath raised from the dead whereof we are witnesses." And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given, hath given him this, this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled." Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, 
when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, A prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son, Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. And I'll have to tell you here that Peter did not get to finish the sermon. They were too angry at him to let him finish this sermon. But the miraculous healing of the crippled man in verses 1 through 11 provided Peter with an opportunity to preach to a much larger crowd. Now, I, I hate to sound frivolous when I, when I put it this way, but that miracle was actually the warm-up act that gave Peter this wonderful opportunity to preach to more people. And I suppose I could be a little bit crasser by saying that there are opportunities to preach to the lost when they're a captive audience and they have to listen to you. I grew up in a preacher's family, and over the years I've attended many funerals. And my dad taught me as I was growing up that when you have family and friends that come to a funeral service, that there is a golden opportunity there to include the gospel in your funeral sermon. I've had at times members of the church that would say, what are you going to say in the funeral message? And they would ask me what I was going to preach because they did not want me to say something that might embarrass or anger their family members. And then there have been others that have said, I have a heathen family. They don't know anything at all about Christ. They know nothing about the gospel. They said, don't you dare let them get out of this building without giving them the gospel. And so that's my usual method. As when we do a funeral sermon, that way you have a captive audience and people are not going to get up and leave during a funeral. And so you preach the gospel to them. They may not hear it in another place. We had an old family friend that was a home missionary. And uh, when I say home missionary, he ministered right here in the United States, and he traveled around to different areas and preached in different places. And one of the things that he would do is that uh, he traveled all the time by Greyhound bus. And so he would get on the bus, and the first thing that he would do is grab the driver's microphone, and he would start preaching to those people on the bus. Now, they weren't going anywhere. I mean, where could they go? So he has his audience, and he preached to them. And there were many times that when he would come to visit our church and visit us that we would be on our way to church and he'd ask us to stop. And my dad would pull over in and, and downtown Lexington and there were bars there. And he would go into the bar and he would walk up to the bar and he'd rap on the bar and he'd say, can I have your attention? And he would begin to preach the gospel to those people there. Now, that's been 30, 40 years ago, and I doubt very seriously you'd ever get the opportunity to stand up on a bus and preach the gospel to people or, or even be allowed to do that into, in a bar. 
Even if you had the courage to do it, you wouldn't be allowed to do it. But that's, that's how, you know, you can make opportunities to, to really give people the gospel of Christ. Well, moving along here, I, I have ten points that I want to give you in Peter's sermon. And I do need to keep on moving because I don't want to keep you here all night. And the first point that I'd like to show you is actually the reason to preach. Why, why do we preach? And then the rest of these are different points that you make along the gospel road. So I want to talk, first of all, to you about why we preach the gospel. That's point number one. And then we're going to talk about numbers 2 through 10, which are parts of the presentation of the gospel of Christ. Now, why do we preach? Well, the reason that we preach is that we preach for the glory of Christ. Now, when you hear me say the word preach, I want you to think not preaching behind the pulpit, but I want you to think about witnessing, preaching and witnessing to people that are lost. Now, a great miracle was done in the first part of this chapter, and who do you suppose took the credit for this miracle? Who took the credit? Well, we look at verses 12 and 13. Peter said, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us? as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk. The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus. Now the purpose of that miracle and the purpose of this preaching is to glorify the wonder-working power of God and to glorify the saving power of Jesus Christ. Now, we notice here that Peter and John wanted no recognition for the part that they played. They were just the instruments that were used by God. And so they cared not at all that their name should have been used in connection with this miracle. This sort of reminded me, as I was thinking about this, this text, of one of the reasons that I stopped going to some of the conferences that I used to attend. And one of the reasons that I did was because of the use of the word I. The constant use of the word I in the preaching. I can remember a few years ago that one of the speakers in this conference could not stop talking about himself. Now, he was a pretty big name among independent Baptist preachers. And uh, when, he was, when he was speaking, he, he wanted to make himself the hero of every story that he told. I wasn't going to say anything about that, but I do remember that afterwards there were some of our men that, that attended with me and came to me afterwards and said, we'd rather not go back if that's the kind of preaching that we're going to hear. And I have to agree with that because I didn't hear any exaltation of Christ. I heard a lot of praising, a lot of shouting for the preacher. Well, Peter would have none of that because what he did was to shut down the preacher praise immediately. And he said, why do you look at us as if by our power or our holiness you made, or we made this man to walk? And so he turned his attention, their attention away from himself and John and he told the people, God has done this in order to glorify his son Jesus. And that's the purpose of our preaching. The salvation of souls glorifies Jesus because every soul that's saved is brought into the conformity of the purpose of God for a person's life. When we become aligned with God in salvation, that's when we begin to worship God in spirit and in truth. And when we do that, this is when Jesus is glorified. So that's the purpose. This is why we preach. We, this is our main thing that we do. And it's to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ in this miracle of the new birth that he's given and bringing souls to him to be saved. It glorifies him. 
So that's why we preach. Now, now we're just going to move on to a little bit about what we preach. Well, we'll follow Peter's outline to show you what Peter did in his presentation. How did he preach? Well, first of all, we saw or we see that he preached man's willful rejection of Christ. He said, but ye denied, this is verse 14, ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer be granted unto you. Now, Peter's message was a scathing one. He pulled no punches here. What he did was to aim directly at the sin that they were guilty of. He didn't shoot them with a shotgun blast and hope to hit somebody with something that he was saying. But what Peter did was to look at them as if looking through a scope and a rifle and aim for that third button on the vest and fire it at the very thing that they needed to hear. That's how Peter preached. He let these people know that what they had done was reject the Savior. And not only had they rejected him, but when Pilate was willing to let him go, they still demanded that Jesus be crucified. They hated him so much, they couldn't stand to hear another day of his preaching. They didn't want him to go free because they didn't want to hear what he had to say. So they had willfully rejected Jesus. And that was despite all the good that he had done, despite the miracles that he had performed. And this was a terrible crime that the Jews had committed. But as we look at what they did, we have to look into our own hearts and see that we are also guilty of the death of Jesus Christ. That it was our sins that put him on the cross. And because of that, God holds us accountable. And so the message is as much to us. What Peter had to say is as much to us as it was to that group of people that were sitting there listening to him. Now, we're, we are guilty sinners. And when we preach, we need to preach that all people are guilty sinners. That all are under the just condemnation of God's law. Preach that people have willfully rejected Christ. And you know how it is for you. I know how it was for me. That we lived in the pleasures of sin. And if it wasn't for the grace of God to come to us and pull us out of the mire of sin, we would still be there today. That all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And every one of us was content to stay exactly where we were until Christ came and he shined the light of the gospel into our hearts. So for people to be saved, you've got to preach that they're lost. And so this is what Peter did. He attacked them directly with their sin and what they'd done against God. Nobody gets saved unless they realize they're lost. And so Peter established man as a sinner. First thing you have to do, establish man as a sinner and willfully rejects Christ. Then he moves on into preaching point number two, or three rather, and that is the death of Christ. Verse 14, but ye denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life. Now again, that's what we call the direct approach. There are not many preachers that will preach this way and point their finger and say, you killed the Prince of Life. Now in one sense, it's true that men killed Christ. These people were complicit in his death. But there's another sense in which Jesus said, there's no one that takes my life. But I give it up freely. I lay it down of myself. Both of those statements are true statements. But the most important thing I think that we need to look at is why was the life of Jesus Christ taken? And this is information that you have to give to people that you want to speak to the gospel of Christ. Why did Christ give his life? Well, Jesus died to be a sacrifice for sins. He died so that the penalty 
of the law that was against us could be satisfied. Now, we tell people that they are guilty sinners, but we also tell them that the sins that they have committed can be removed by the death of Christ on the cross, by faith in that, that his blood is what cleanses us from all of our sins. And if Jesus had not died, if he hadn't made that sacrifice, then the wrath of God that was against us could not be appeased. It was John who said that Christ is the propitiation for our sins. That means the satisfaction, or it means that Jesus Christ placated God for that righteous sentence of judgment that was against us. So we preach that. Christ died. Fourthly, we preach the resurrection of Christ. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. Folks, you don't want to leave Jesus in the tomb. A dead, interred Savior doesn't do anyone any good. Or a Savior hanging on a cross on a gold chain around the neck doesn't do anybody any good. A Savior whose body was stolen from the tomb doesn't do anybody any good. We must preach that Jesus is the resurrected Savior. We preach that he's still or that he is right now at the right hand of the Father. And that the gospel is how that Christ died, how that he was buried, and how he arose from the grave. And if Peter could not have preached a risen Christ, a risen Savior, then there was no hope for anyone. Paul said, if Christ is not raised, then your faith is vain. You're still in your sins. So there's no reason at all for us to preach unless there's a resurrection. And certainly with this crowd, they wouldn't have been interested in anything about Jesus if he was still in Joseph's tomb. If he was still there, then he would be nothing but an ordinary man. And then all the claims that they made against him would have been true. They said that he was an imposter. They said that all the works that he did, he did under the power of Satan, not the work of God. They said that he was a liar. And if Jesus didn't come out of the tomb after he promised that he would, they would be right. And he couldn't be the Savior. So only if he's absent the tomb by his own power and his own authority does he prove his claims. And that's exactly what happened. He came out of the grave. And the disciples were all eyewitnesses that he was alive. And so if you want to reach people and you want to see them saved, don't forget about Christ's resurrection from the grave because it is the resurrection that validates all the personal claims that Christ made. Without that, he's an ordinary man. So Peter preached in verse 15, God raised him from the dead. Fifthly, preach faith in the name of Christ. Now, in verse number 6 of the chapter, Peter said to the crippled man, In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, it was by faith in Jesus that the crippled man was able to walk, and by faith in Christ he did receive his salvation. And then our text says here in verse 16, And his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye see and know, Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now there we see a very specific pointed object of faith. Now it doesn't do any good to believe that there's a God out there somewhere. It doesn't do any good to believe that Jesus was a good person and that he was a good moral example for us. The worst of the world's religions believe that about Jesus. Did you know the Muslims claim him? 
The Muslims say that he was a prophet, and they agree to the good that Jesus did. The Mormons claim Jesus as well, but their faith is not faith in his name. And when I speak of faith in the name of Christ, I don't mean faith in the five letters that spell his name. It means everything that this name stands for. The name means Savior. And it stands for the eternal Godhead of the Son. The first, the last, the beginning and the end. It's faith in the power of everything that that name represents. That is the power or the faith that saves. So his name is salvation. And so a person has to believe that this God-man, Jesus, has the power to change lives. And he's the one that brings people from spiritual death into spiritual life. Well, Peter preached in the name of Jesus. And very clearly in the fourth chapter, verse 12, a verse we all know well, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so a person's sincere beliefs in their own values and their own personal truths will not save. There's only one truth that's saved. That's God truth. And that is Christ is the manifestation of the Father on this earth. He's God in the flesh. He was full of grace and truth. And so we preach just as we talked about in the sermon this morning, the exclusivity of Jesus. He makes no compromises with anyone. He is the only way. He's the only truth and the only life. Then, sixthly, we preach that man is without excuse. Verse 17. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance, or I knew that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Now, without doubt, there was enough evidence, or there is enough evidence to believe in God. So, we start there. We start with that. Is there a God? Is there enough evidence to believe there is a God? Well, in the book of Romans, Paul said that nature reveals that there is a God. You can't go out at night and look at the stars and say there is no God. You can't look at beautiful mountains and running streams and not know that there is a God. Last month, my wife and I drove through Death Valley and we went through Yosemite. You can't see all the magnificent sights that are there and say, well, you know something? I wonder how that happened. It all happened It's some wild chance that, that something like that so beautiful happened. You could never come and say, well, that's not by intelligent design. You can't look at your fingers and your toes. You can't look at a newborn baby without knowing there's a God. So we have no excuse for that. We, we have no excuse, or no one does, to claim that God doesn't exist. And I pity the atheist because at the bare minimum, God has shown him enough that, uh, of the handiwork that he's done in creation to prove that he's real. So man is without excuse concerning the reality of this God. And so once we come to the point that we understand that there is a God, then we're also without excuse not to surrender and know the reality of needing a Savior to bring us to that God, to the one who created the world, and to know that we are indebted to him, that we owe him our allegiance. And the quest of every person who realizes there is a God is to find that God, to know him. And so when Peter preached about this, he talked about the ignorance of the people. But what he wasn't doing was trying to soften the blow and said, oh, you just did these things in ignorance. You really didn't know what you were doing. Well, not for a minute. That's not what he's saying. Their ignorance was willful ignorance, which is actually the worst kind. Their ignorance is the type that demands the most punishment. These people crucified Christ while knowing Scripture. 
He told them he was found in Scripture. Remember that he was in the synagogue in Nazareth and he was reading from the book of Isaiah. And when he placed the book aside, he, after the reading, he said, This day is this Scripture fulfilled in your ears. That was a messianic prophecy that it was reading. It was in Old Testament scripture, and yet they crucified him. He fulfilled prophecy, but they crucified him. So they saw the miracles, saw him cast out demons, feeding thousands, healing diseases, lepers, blind, raising the dead, controlling nature, and still they crucified him. And we think what a horrible crime that that was, that they would crucify this one who gave so much visible evidence of who he was. And we say, that is so bad. But then we think about people today. What about Americans that have religious freedom where we can attend church at any time? We can hear the word of God being preached. How much is it worse for a person to be able to come into a place like this and to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached and to hear all the wonderful things that God has done and to know that he's been raised from the dead and see what God has provided for us in a Savior and then turn away from that in willful, gross negligence. It's sin of the worst kind. People are without excuse and so we need to tell them your ignorance does not excuse you from the wrath of God. I think Paul said it best in Acts 17. He said, In the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. And so when you preach the word, you preach that people are without excuse. You don't say, Oh, it's so sorry for you, and you really didn't mean to do it, and you're really a good person and all of that. No, no. You've got to preach that people are without excuse for rejecting Christ and turning their backs on him. Seventhly, In Peter's message, he preached repentance and conversion. Verse 19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord. So Peter's message pointed out the sin of crucifying the Son of God, and he wanted them to know that they were condemned sinners. But at the same time, he wants them to know that their case is not hopeless. They are condemned but not left in despair. You see, what you have to do in a, in a presentation, uh, when it's preaching, when it's witnessing, you must do this. You must spell out the negatives and you must make them as real as they actually are. But you always have to follow up the negatives with the positives. That there is a positive. You don't want to leave people in despair because the Bible makes it very clear that anyone, anyone who will believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. What we must do, what people must do is repent. They must see themselves as terrible sinners and see Jesus as the only one that can help them. So they needed to repent and to be converted. Now repentance, that simply means to turn from sin. It means to uh, turn away from uh, the the attitudes to turn away from the sin that's in your heart, from the things that you've done against God, to turn your back on that. And then conversion, uh, in this sense that it's speaking about here, is to commit yourself wholly and completely to God, to Jesus Christ. Now, spiritually, there are people that are headed the wrong way, and they need to get off the road in which they're traveling and get on the right road by trusting Jesus to save them. So Peter says to them, repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out. Now remember, he's just talked to them about this awful sin of 
crucifying Jesus Christ. Now, is there anybody that can name a greater sin than that? We've all sinned, and I think that there are things that we'd be ashamed to tell other people that we've done. And we know the list of sins that can be put down for all the people that are in prison and all the other places that they are. But here, Peter is speaking specifically to them about the sin of having crucified Christ. And he says, this is what can happen to you. Even though you're guilty of the worst sins that can be committed, you repent of your sin and be converted, and those sins will be blotted out. Now, the meaning of that, the imagery that's given here, blotting out, is like having something written into a table of wax and then having it rubbed off with a blunt instrument to destroy or to mar that record. And so just as the crippled man becomes a beautiful illustration of salvation, here we have a beautiful illustration of what God does with our sin. That when we trust him, the record is wiped clean. It's all rubbed out. The psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. In Isaiah it says, behold, for peace I had great bitterness, but thou hast in love to my soul delivered it from the pit of corruption, for thou hast cast all my sins behind thy back. But do you know that there are some people who preach in pulpits today and they say that, or they think that God retains their sins they get saved and so they think that if they don't keep up all the installment payments in their salvation that it's going to be lost that what God will do is he'll pull up the record and then he will condemn them to hell but that's as far from the truth as it can possibly be when we are saved the blood of Jesus Christ covers all sin past present and future all of that's taken care of by faith in Christ And the truth is, if there was any of that left for us to pay, then we would all go to hell. But since Christ saved us from all sin and we are complete in him, then we can have the refreshing that he speaks of in the last part of verse number 19. Now again, we're concerned about context and what Peter means by this. And that refreshing that he speaks of is a reference to the coming of Christ in the millennial kingdom. And the people that he's talking to are Jews. And these are people that have been promised an everlasting kingdom of peace and rest. Well, how is that obtained? Exactly by the way he's just given them. They receive their peace and their hope of this kingdom by their repentance and their conversion. And so when you preach, make sure that you tell people they must repent of all their sins and be converted to belief in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Now, number eight is to preach the second coming of Christ. Verse number 20. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which before was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. Now, does that remind you of something? It does me. Chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Jesus ascended into heaven, and it says, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. So he said, He shall send Jesus Christ, or the same Jesus. Now, I think there's a dual meaning in the verse. 
First of all, I think it speaks of Christ coming into a person's heart. And when that happens, there is a great time of refreshing. The Bible says that we become new creatures in Christ. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And so the inner being of a person that believes in Christ is cleansed from all of its sin. When you believe, Christ lives inside of you in the person of the Holy Spirit. So that's a great thought. I have Jesus with me wherever I am. He lives in me. He knows all my troubles. He knows all my heartaches. He's here in my saddest times, and he's here in the times of rejoicing. And that is a refreshing thought. But I also believe it means that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, again in the context here, he's saying that Israel is going to be restored to the promised land. It happens during the millennial kingdom when the world, the whole world, is at perfect peace. And so the world, uh, the saints of God reign in peace over the whole earth. And then after that happens, the earth is renovated. It's made perfect again. The curse of sin is purged from it completely. And so there are many, many good things that will happen when Jesus comes back. Many good things will happen for the saved. Many good things happen for them. But for those that are without Christ, it is going to be a terribly frightening experience. There's nothing to look forward to but misery and death when Christ comes if you haven't believed in him as Savior. And so I I believe, as we taught as we were going through the book of Revelation, that if you're in a service such as this tonight and you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ being preached and Christ were to come back and you haven't received him as Savior after hearing the message that after afterwards if you enter into the tribulation having heard the gospel of Christ prior to then you're not going to have another opportunity to repent of your sins because the Holy Spirit will no longer convict that happens to be my my uh, opinion of the scripture on that so we need to preach that Jesus is coming back and everybody must be ready for his return now following up that thought is number nine is to preach that judgment is coming Verse 22, for Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord God raise up unto you of your brethren like unto me. Him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say unto you, and it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Yea, and all the prophets from Samuel and those that follow after, and as many as have spoken, have likewise foretold of these days. So the Old Testament said there is a greater prophet coming and those that do not hear this prophet are going to be destroyed. You know what that is? A prediction of judgment. Jesus often warned about judgment, that every person will stand before God. Now, if you're saved, you're going to stand before God. You'll stand before him at the judgment seat of Christ. And when you reach that place, it's not going to be a determination of whether you go to heaven or hell. You've trusted Christ, and so it's not a determination of that. It's to be rewarded, rewarded according to your faithfulness. That's what the judgment seat of Christ is about. But those that don't know Christ are going to stand before God also, but they'll be at a different judgment. They'll be at the great white throne judgment. And this will neither be a determination for whether the person goes to heaven or hell because every person that appears at the great white throne judgment is going to hell. That's already been determined because they didn't receive Christ in this life. So they're judged then 
according to the amount of punishment that they will receive. Not how long that it's going to last, because it lasts forever, but the amount of punishment, the extent of that punishment, that is the, the, uh, the feeling of it, the terribleness of it, the, how much pain is going to be inflicted. That's what this is about. So every person needs to know that. Every person needs to know that they have to meet their maker. Far better it is to meet him as Savior and Lord than to meet him lost and condemned. This is part of the gospel. God's wrath will be poured without mixture into the cup of his indignation for those who have not received Jesus Christ. So when you tell people about Christ, let them know judgment is coming. And if you die without Christ, the punishment is the everlasting fires of hell. Well, then we come to the last of Peter's points. Number 10 is preach the privileges of the redeemed. There is a hell that is waiting for the lost. But there's something different waiting for those that are redeemed. Verses 25 and 26 says, Ye are the children of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying unto Abraham, And in thy seed shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. Unto you first, God, having raised up his son Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from his iniquities. Again, Peter's preaching to a Jewish crowd and he says the Jews are blessed because God sent his son to them first. They were the chosen nation. They were blessed because they were the children of Abraham. They were blessed because it was through the seed of Abraham that Christ came. These people had many advantages. Paul says in Romans 3 verses 1 and 2, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way, chiefly because unto them were committed the oracles of God. Then he wrote in Romans 9 verses 3 through 5, For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, who are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, was over all God blessed forever. Amen. What blessings did God pour out on Israel? They were so blessed. How could they not recognize who he was? Well, that seems impossible privileges, blessings that are beyond compare, and yet they chose to reject the Messiah. They were privileged, but they didn't take advantage of their privileges. Well, there were a few Jews that did, and we learn that through them, all of the kindreds of the world are blessed. That is, Christ came through them, and then these people the apostles that are speaking to them are Jewish Christians. And so people are blessed by hearing the gospel of Christ. And you and I are blessed. We're guaranteed with, of having all the privileges that come with the knowledge of the Son of God. Later, Peter wrote on this subject in 1 Peter 1, 3, and 4. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again into a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And listen, this is what we get, to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you. There is a hell waiting for those who do not receive Christ, and there is heaven waiting for those that are redeemed. 
And so when you preach, you let people know there is a great reward coming. There is heaven coming for those that know Christ. And you can't beat the benefits and the privileges of knowing Christ as Savior. A guarantee of eternal life and a guarantee of eternal fellowship with the Son of God. You have been redeemed. You have been blessed. You are especially privileged. Peter had a lot of preaching points. Lot is compacted into a few verses here in Acts chapter 3. And it sprang from, the opportunity to preach sprang from the healing of that crippled man. So Peter gives us 10 preaching points. and shows us how it's vital, how these things are vital in reaching people with the gospel. And what I want you to do is just evaluate yourself and, and see how you're doing with this. And I hope that what you would do is take this listening sheet home and I hope you filled it out and you study the passage. All the verses are down there for you. Study the passage, pray about it, and there you have all the information that you ever need to speak to someone about Jesus Christ. Peter gave us a perfect outline for what people need to know about the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your blessings. We thank you for that we're able to look into your word and find such great messages as this, as the one that Peter preached, and how it contains so many things that, that show us where we are, what needs to be done, what needs to be believed, and then what will happen to those who do. We thank you, Lord, for salvation in Jesus Christ. A lot here, but the message is very simple for everyone. We have sinned against you. We must repent and place our faith in you to save us from those sins. Help us to tell people about this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat>